Welcome to the new Innovation Matters podcast series of the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe. Innovation Matters aims to engage leading experts on a range of topics to explore how innovation could drive sustainable development in Eurasia and beyond. Our episodes explore ongoing trends, opportunities and challenges, such as the fourth industrial revolution, the sharing economy, the circular economy, autonomous vehicles and digitization. Welcome to Innovation Matters. Today, we are going to look into the innovation paradox or why innovation based on good ideas is not happening as much as we would expect. And our guests today are from the World Bank. We first have Xavier Sirera, Senior Economist, Finance Competitiveness and Innovation Global Practice, and William Maloney, Chief Economist for the Latin American and Caribbean region. They both work on innovation in developing and emerging economies, and they are the lead authors of a book called The Innovation Paradox, Developing Country Capabilities and the Unrealized Promise of Technological Catch-Up. Xavier and Bill, welcome to Innovation Matters. Thanks very much for the invitation. Thanks. Your book is an excellent overview of a central question that we here at UNEC are working with, with our member states. Innovation, or basically trying out ideas to see what works and what does not, and doing things better systematically, or uh, what Mukir calls the gift of Athens, is what makes us prosperous today. So then the question is, why is this not happening as much as it actually should? And especially in developing and transition economies, we see modest use of this potential. And even so, more nowadays, that technology is becoming both more powerful and less expensive, and most of the actual knowledge is actually out there for free. So you talk about this phenomenon as the innovation paradox. So apparently many countries, especially emerging countries and developing countries, are leaving billions in foregone productivity growth on the table. So how do we define innovation and what do you mean by this innovation paradox? Could you elucidate a bit? Yeah, thanks for the question. Basically, I think it's important to define innovation before we get it into the paradox, because there is some popular misconception about innovation, which is only or primarily about invention, about high tech, about research excellence, which are parts of innovation, parts of inputs of innovation. But innovation is much broader concept and it's based on the accumulation of knowledge and on the firms and society and organizations introducing products and services, which may not be radically different, which could be only about improving processes. But there is a, it's important to make this point that innovation is something, is something much broader than the issue of patenting, the issue of invention and so on. But uh, maybe Bill, you want to, to get into, into the paradox? So we frame this as a paradox because what we know from the advanced countries is that the returns to innovation of all kinds are very high. And what we think is that developing countries should have even higher rates of return because of the possibility of borrowing things that have already been invented and applying them to their local context. So rates of return should be and are estimated for many developing countries to be extremely high. Yet, we find that most countries invest far less in everything from product and process upgrading to R&D. And the question therefore is, why, if the rates of return should be so high, aren't countries, well, are countries leaving this tremendous potential productivity growth on the table? What we finally come down as thinking about that is that, in fact, 
most countries are probably not getting the rates of return that we think precisely what we expect. The way we think about it is that most countries are probably not getting the rates of return that we would expect from follower countries being able to catch up because there are many other complementary factors that necessarily go into making innovation profitable. And those are not in place in developing countries. So, of course, at UNECE, we see this, many of the things that you say playing out uh, every day. We see the innovation paradox uh, in, this, in the sense that innovation is happening much less than theoretically should be. And where it is happening, it's often the exception that proves the rule. There's often a story behind it. There might be an investor involved. There might be a chance, there might be a chance encounter. But it's in most cases, it's not happening systematically, and it's also not happening among sectors. So the productivity differentials among sectors will be much higher than you would see in, in developing countries. So something about the diffusion of even basic good ideas is, uh, is, is not working. Maybe the incentives are not there. Maybe complementarities are missing. But let's first explore what you have found in terms of stylized facts about how this paradox plays out in different countries. Things like divergences in absorption and productivity. Basically, to which extent are countries, developing countries and emerging countries, not leveraging the Stockholm knowledge that should be easily available in theory? So what, what we find in the book is, and, and we kind of try to show for different indicators of innovation inputs and outputs and so on, I think if you if you work it backwards, I think that the evidence that in general innovation has an impact on growth is quite positive. It's we are in a privileged area. This is not like industrial policy, right? So we know that supported innovation is something that is good for growth. Yeah. But then when you start looking at different levels from technology licenses to other types certification, etc., what you observe is that actually developing countries or lower income countries invest much less yeah, than developed countries, okay? Which is, is the issue about the paradox of the returns are high where they're not investing, you know? But you see this kind of consistent evidence about much less investments in developing countries, all right? Which, what we try to explain in the paradox are the reason why. And I think there we get into the issues of complementary factors. We emphasize very much the issue of management and organizational quality as one fundamental complementary factor, okay? But this sort of lagging in terms of innovation, that is a kind of an important stylized fact that we observe. If I could just pick up on that a little bit. When we talk about complementary factors, actually what that implies is, is something pretty profound in terms of policy. Often when we talk about innovation policy, we say, oh, R&D spending is too low in this country, therefore we need to resolve the market failures around, for instance, R&D in a specific innovation targeted investment. What we're arguing is these complementarities range, as Shavi said, um, they range from managerial competencies to access to finance, to access to external markets, to access to inputs, and just the basic quality of the workers that you have in your firms. You may have a fantastic idea, but if you don't have these other things working for you, that idea will never get to market and therefore you'll never get a rate of return. So we argue when we talk about a greater national innovation system that developing countries in particular need to think far beyond the usual subsidies to R&D or subsidies to patents to encompass all of the possible barriers that, to quote David Landis, bound, bind Prometheus, right? That effectively prevent 
that innovators or entrepreneurs would get a higher rate of return to innovating. Thank you. And indeed, the issue of understanding complementarities and also path dependency is something which comes up very often in our work. And this, of course, has implications also for policies. What do you do first? What exactly is the causal effect? Does it make sense, for instance, to push for more R&D spending if the system doesn't work? Does it make sense to push for IPR registrations or projects that can lead to IPR registrations if most of the innovation potential is elsewhere or if the complementarities to operate at that level are not available in the economy. So many are struggling with this. One of the issues that you mentioned briefly and that I would invite you to speak a little bit more about is organizational and managerial capacities. In our reviews, when we look at the different complementarities in transition economies in the ECE region, what we pretty systematically find is different proxies that indicate relatively low level of what we call absorptive capacity. So by that, we mean the ability of firms to experiment with and scale up ideas. Some people also talk about the missing middle. Talk a little bit about managerial and organizational capabilities, what they are, what you have found, and what some avenues are to deal with this issue. Because, of course, it's it's a long-term problem. I think um, the role of managerial quality in innovation is coming to the fore as a major issue not only in developing countries, but elsewhere. When we think about, we, we talk about stimulating R&D and offering R&D subsidies to firms for them to do R&D, but Shabi and I have worked, for instance, with small and medium enterprises around the world. And what you notice is many of them don't have the capacity to take a one or two year horizon, let alone organize and implement a multi-year innovation in R&D project. The capabilities are just not there. And when you look at the countries in both the advanced countries, but also in the fast growers in Asia, you find them investing a lot in the quality of managers. And and this is critical before we start talking about higher innovation, that owners of firms and managers of firms are able to do very you know, lower level innovation, such as adopting new, identifying and adopting new processes and products before we start talking about more exotic things like R&D. Yeah, so just let me emphasize that because it's clear for the case of R&D projects and the more complex they are, the more managerial capabilities and organizational capabilities you need to manage the project itself, the uncertainty, having targets and so on. But then you, you think about more basic type of technology adoption as well, you know, issues about start selling online. That requires a set of managerial practices in place. You need to talk to your customers. You need to have things in place where you can monitor what you're selling and so on, right? And very often kind of the focus of the discussion has been in, especially on technology, about the technology itself and not about the real complementary factors that are actually part of the same package and they are very important. But I think what we document in the book as well is that that's how it happened in East Asia when you look at the case of Japan, uh, learning on, on management practices. When we look at the case of Singapore, the same, you know, it's not that no, it, there is clear evidence suggesting how you need to build these management capabilities in order to be able to do much more sophisticated innovation projects. I think just to build on what Shabi just said, there's an attention to both the supply side of knowledge, if you will, the laboratories or the research centers that are often the focus of innovation policy. But as important 
was the demand side. You need to have firms that can take these ideas to market. Otherwise, you're pushing on a string, right? You can invest all sorts of money in R&D or in research centers and the like. But if you don't have entrepreneurs with capabilities of developing an idea, taking it to market, and with all the access to necessary intermediate complementary factors that they need, then that will be wasted. And it's regrettably easier to quantify the former, right? It's like how many patents your particular research institution has put out. And that's all great. But if there's no dynamic business community that can monetize that, then it's not a good use of money. Thank you to both of you. Indeed, complementarities are essential. But as you mentioned, it's not only about a couple of complementarities. It's about the entire what we could call innovation system and a range of different factors that are mutually interdependent. The problem is these are not only difficult enough to understand and delineate in theory, but especially so in practice. And we see in our member states, but also I think the world, phenomena such as emergence of silo mentality, incentives to promote existing industries, to measure outputs rather than outcomes, and that little of the support that our countries like engage in is arguably catalytic, while at the same time many basic opportunities are left on the table through lacking diffusion and absorption, relatively straightforward ideas that should be easy to put into practice. So you talk about this middle-income situation and about managing this complexity in middle-income countries and transition economies in general as the innovation policy dilemma. Could you please elaborate on what you mean by that? What we find in the in the data is that returns to innovation, in fact, do rise as you move away from the frontier countries, but then they turn sharply declining after a certain point. And we argue that this is due to the accumulation of more and more distortions and more market failures. That is, poorer countries are going to have more markets that aren't working or more more distortions that reduce the rate of return to any kind of innovation. But that means that the challenge for reform or for stimulating innovation becomes more and more complex as you're a poorer country exactly at the time that your capabilities as a government become more restricted. So that's what we call the innovation policy dilemma. And it uh, requires that policymakers really do identify the principal barriers to innovation and work on them, reduce the dimensionality, if you will, of the policy, of the of the policy package that you're going to try to implement. And that's not easy, but it's necessary because it's easy to say we're going to do all these different things at once, or even worse, just focus on what Sweden or Finland is doing and say, okay, we're going to do those things, which aren't the things you necessarily need to do and get no effect of it. The resolution of the dilemma fundamentally rises in identifying the key things that are affecting, impeding innovation in your country. Yeah, just to add that there is also something has been omitted from all the discussions and not from all the discussions but from many discussions around innovation is the capacity of the countries to implement right so you have this problem of complexity if you are a low-income country about the multiplicity of market failures and lack of complementary factors okay we propose to reduce the dimensionality of these problems and focus more something in what you can achieve but there is another part as well which is that you have to invest on your policy you need to, and your policymakers. You need to train them, and you need for them also to implement modern and good public management 
processes. And that's also part of solving the dilemma. And that is being omitted from many discussions where you say, well, this country should be doing this or that. But of course, who's going to implement it? Okay. And it also goes back to the issue of fragmentation of who is in charge of innovation policy, how you coordinate, how you make sure that you avoid duplications and so on. Thank you. This really is at the heart of the work that we are doing with our national reviews and the new innovation policy outlook, which is a sub-regional qualitative composite index measuring exactly the scope and extent and quality of innovation policies, institutions, and also processes. You mentioned the tendency to call it here at the UN with good practices. Land Pritchett famously talks about isomorphic mimicry, which means basically that you set up an institution that looks like maybe an incubator or an accelerator. It feels like an incubator, an accelerator. All the frills are there, but when you actually scratch a little bit beneath the surface, you find that they host uh, companies that do maybe network administration or things that are actually not innovative. And a leading reason behind this is, of course, first underestimating the importance of complementarities, but also I would submit underestimating the importance of the incentives policymakers have, such as if your success is measured based on subsequent employment growth, you're going to pick a company that's pretty likely to have employment growth to support. You're not going to pick a company where the risk of failure is too high. And it's the companies that have a high risk of failure that are the most important to support because they are the ones that bring the demonstration effects that can bring about new dynamics in the economy. And this is very hard to put into practice. And that is by your discussion about the importance of getting the governance right and adapting it to local capacities and also incentives are so important. In this context, you talk about the four key dimensions, design, implementation, coherence, and predictability. Could you explain a little bit what you what you mean with that and maybe give one or two examples for our listeners of where it has worked and where it has not worked and why? Sure, sure. Um, and, and this is based also in, in some of the work that uh, we have been doing around and policy effectiveness reviews of, of innovation policies in, in several countries. And just let me start perhaps by the end on the predictability one, because I think the key issue here, and we try to show with some data for Latin America, is that innovation policies objectives tend to be more to the medium to the long term. They are hardly or rarely short-term goals. And when you are changing governments every four years and every four years, there is a change in the priorities of innovation policy. That is going to affect achieving these goals. And I think we need some predictability and some persistence on the goals and directions of innovation policy that you cannot be changing continuously because that's going to create a lot of noise, uncertainty for the producers, for the firms. For example, we have some cases where they have been changing some of the mechanisms of R&D tax incentives every two years, right? So what is there for the company? They don't know if now they're going to invest, they're going to get that tax deduction and incentive, but in two years, things may change. So, So that predictability and persistence on goals is important, yeah? Then much more on the policy making, I think the issue of the design, which may seem obvious, is not that obvious in practice. And you have a lot of what you were saying about this isomorphic mimicry by which you're just copying policy instruments that seem to be working in another country under different conditions, and you implement it as a good thing. And of course, your context and conditions are totally different. Yeah. And what we observe, looking much more in the details in many countries, is that when you look at the justifications of the design of some policy instruments for innovation, it doesn't have a clear justification. It's not that you have identified the market failure 
or the coordination failure, and you have designed that specific policy instrument as a result. But what you have is, well, we think that this is going to work because you work in Sweden, so let's do it here. Yeah, so you need a very kind of robust processes that justify and make a good design. Some of the characteristics, for example, that you need to involve the private sector. And I think this is a, something that it may be quite relevant for the region to what extent the private sector is involved in some of the discussions on the design of these innovation policy instruments. And we are very aware that you have to avoid capture of some companies about this design, but you cannot design things without having some feedback from the beneficiaries. Then when you look at implementation in practice, and we don't in different regions of the world, you see a lot of bottlenecks. There are no resources to implement. People have problems to monitor outcomes. People have problems to travel. Sometimes there is extremely cumbersome access procedures to be a beneficiary, which basically make only a few firms that tend to be medium or large capture some of this policy support. So there is a whole range of processes that are good public management processes that are very often not in place. And then the last one is an evaluation, right? You need to give some room for failure, but that failure has to be accounted and you have to measure whether your program is working or not. And in many countries, like the valuation processes are still incipient. You have issues where ex-ante valuation has not been implemented. You have issues about the decisions to discount a program, to cut it completely ad hoc, right, and not based on evidence. And many cases where you don't really understand what the impact of this program is because you have not measured, right? And that's critical for innovation. Just on the issue of coherence policy, Exactly. The sort of accumulated isomorphic mimicry across many years often leads to many different policies in many different ministries, each with very small amounts of funding that in the end neither attack the market failures or the areas that we think are of most concern, nor even if they did, would be sufficient to make progress. I think one of the tools that we highlight in the book, which Shabi has actually pioneered, is what we call an innovation public expenditure review which is just a way of sitting all the ministries down and saying, okay, what are the policies we actually have? Let's take, let's get them all on the table so we see what we're spending on. And every time you do this in any country, you find huge amounts of redundancies, of fragmentation of policies, and generally a lack of direction, of the kind of direction that Shavi was talking about. It's like, it, it's not only that we don't have a sustained effort over many years, we just have many, many fragmented programs without a clear direction. And in some sense, the, pub, the public expenditure reviews turn out to be a very good way of starting the dialogue within the country on what such a sustained innovation policy should be. Thank you. That, again, chimes very much with what we find in our reviews. I think to boil it down to the essentials, what's important is to know what the market failure, what the underlying problem is. What are you compensating for? What are you trying to fix? You're not going to be able to make an excellent and solid guess about it. These are complex issues, but you can make a guess. You can have a theory. You can develop objectives based on it. And around that, we have to build structures that give everyone the wherewithal and the incentives to try things out, but also to stop what's not working and to learn from what the results are. If you don't get the results that you intend, you try you try something else. And only when it works do you scale up. If we would do that more systematically, I think in many countries, innovation policy could be radically more effective. But this, of course, requires, as you say, capabilities, 
and incentives within an already established system. And to address this issue, you stress the importance of thinking of this in terms of a capabilities escalator, meaning that you have to adapt what you want to achieve and how you approach it based on the capabilities that are there both inside and outside the public sector. Could you talk a little bit about what you mean by the capabilities escalator? I think the capabilities escalator is a way of putting some structure on the thinking of innovation policy. It's not totally prescriptive, right? Because countries are going to have firms in different parts of the capability escalator. But what it wants is to put some direction to which the public resources for innovation go. Yeah. The idea is that you're going to have roughly three different levels by which at the bottom level, you have some production capabilities mainly. So firms can operate, can sell, uh, some will grow, some will die, etc. right? Then you will go to something a bit more about incremental, where you can start doing some sort of incremental innovation. You can adopt some existing technologies, okay? And there you're going to be a little bit in between. And then at the third, it's going to be where you have companies that are going to have the capabilities for invention to perform very complex R&D projects, right? So note that countries like advanced countries like the US are investing in all the parts of the escalator, right? So you're going to have super complex high-tech R&D, but you're going to have a service of supporting SMEs, right? To improve their management capabilities, their organization, adopt technologies and so on, right? Now, if you go to a low-income country, what it doesn't make sense is that you're going to have all your policies or your resources directed equally, let's say, to the three levels of the escalator, right? Because you rarely have company that can bring a new frontier technology to the market, yeah? I'm not saying that it's not possible, but at least what I would expect is that the policy mix of this country is going to reflect the level of capability. So in this way, the escalator is a way of gradually map how innovation policy should look like. One thing that comes out in the recent literature on managerial capabilities building is that the return to interventions in firms are incredibly high. You can recoup the investment in managerial capabilities in a year and the rates of return turn out to be very high. And then the question is why don't firms do it naturally? And part of the reason is they don't know what they don't know. You find that firms that are the least objectively measured, the least managerially capable, are the ones that think that actually they're doing pretty well. So if you look at countries like Singapore, they'll have a series of programs functioning at the basement level, if you will, that's just highly subsidized, just trying to get firms through the front door to realize what they really need to work on and where they're lacking. But Singapore's Spring, uh, the institute is called Spring, also then have you know, medium level programs for tech, for upgrading technologically, the way Shavi was saying at the second level. And then they also have a series of research institutes which feed into really high-end firms that need support on that front. So in fact, in any country, you may have all three levels working. But on the other hand, when you're looking at poorer countries, it's clear that where you want to be focusing is on raising the quality of firms that are at the first level of managerial capabilities, the first step of the escalator. Just to pull together a couple themes that that we've been talking about, I think this idea of being very clear in identifying what are the barriers to firms innovating is the first step in thinking about a policy, but then careful attention to the mission and the incentives underlying any organization or policy that you put together are critical. At one point, we 
did a brief survey of research institutes in Latin America, and none of them had a mission statement. There was no particular goal of interaction with the private sector and boosting the productivity of the private sector, and the incentives to do so with the institution were largely absent. If you do that, nothing is going to happen from that particular intervention. I also think that your emphasis on experimentation and being able to let things fail when they don't work is critical. So there's a kind of duality. At the one level, you need to have a multi-year, multi-decadal policy for upgrading your firms and for generally strengthening your capacity to manage knowledge within a country. But that also means that some things you're going to have to abandon if they're not working particularly well. Just let me ask a couple that one is going back a little bit, which is about the definition of innovation, which I think is still worth emphasizing that innovation is not only about patenting and invention, but it's also about incremental innovation, about adopting existing technologies. I think that that we've been very heavy sending this message, but it's still worth to send because there's still some policymakers thinking on Silicon Valley or the Korean uh, technology parks. And second, perhaps, is again, not to omit the policymaking process and to invest in your policymakers' capabilities as well, to have very strong processes, the best you can about managing, monitoring and evaluating your programs. I think that that's still a very important message. If I can add one more, we have a tendency often on policy to focus on the supply side. It's easy to build laboratories or set up institutions, but in fact, it's firms that wind up doing innovating and governments can't direct technology unless they have a high, high degree of capacity. So focusing on why firms are not innovating, and that's a combination of the capabilities, but also of the enabling environment. And that includes everything, again, from finance to the human capital of their workers to actually the competitive structure. If you have a very protected market, there's not much incentive for firms to get out of bed in the morning and uh, think about how they might do things better. So I think this need to ensure that the incentives are there and the capabilities are there in the private sector to accumulate knowledge capital. I mean, to innovate across a broad range of activities, it needs to be there. So thank you very much for that summary. Test as a final point and to illustrate what you have in mind a little bit more to the policymakers and the experts that are listening to this especially in transition economies in ECE. Maybe you could give us one or two examples of countries that started out developing or emerging and managed this process of the capability escalator and development of complementarities and policy coordination, stopping what's not working relatively well, some of the central elements that you mentioned, just to give us an impression of where it worked and why. Two cases that strike me as successful implementation of managerial upgrading programs, which, by the way, exist throughout the advanced countries, were Japan and Singapore. Japan has, at this moment, three or four major organizations dealing with raising the productivity or quality or standards of their local firms. And these date back to World War II. And they're key to part of the miracle that happened after the World War II. In Singapore in the 1990s, when they realized that their local firms were not benefiting much from the presence of multinationals in the country, they precisely asked Japan to help them organize a similar kind of organization embedded within an overall productivity agenda for Singapore that led to what is now called, well, what was Spring, I think it's got a different name now, but uh, which 
follows very closely the model we're talking about with the capabilities escalator, getting firms in so they learn what they don't know. And then once they know what they don't know, can invest in areas, progressively more sophisticated areas that they need to master to, to upgrade. Xavier, do you want to say something about South Korea? Korea is a good example of, of kind of dictating objectives that are mapped to the capabilities of the private sector. Okay, And by focusing on absorbing knowledge from investors, by building more basic capabilities at the beginning to develop these more sophisticated R&D projects and, and becoming champions on patenting and on R&D over time. But what is consistent is basically one, the focus on innovation and technology is important for development, but two, to be quite realistic about the objectives that they had at every decade. You change them according to what you observe in terms of the capabilities of the private sector. Thank you for those examples. In fact, I think uh, most of us still wonder about exactly what happened in East Asia and what the recipe for the success of the region was. To me, actually, it seems like a mixed story. There were many things I tried out that did not work, such as heavy investment, heavy industry, and over-regulation of um, the count. So perhaps its success was not because it had great ideas systematically, but because it had the wherewithal and the incentives to weed out bad ideas systematically and to link to market incentives. And I think you can see this in the development of several of the successful sectors in South Korea and Taiwan in particular. But unfortunately, it's time to draw this episode to a close. So I wanted to say a few words, drawing together some of the things we have discussed. Of course, these topics are very timely and very important for our constituencies, uh, innovation policymakers and ECE transition economies in particular. Many of them have good fundamentals, such as very high levels of educational attainment, a tradition of and political commitment to innovation. Many have retained networks of public applied research institutions, but most of them see relatively little diversification and productivity growth at least closely linked to those initiatives, and despite sometimes relatively generous and broad uh, support mechanisms. And when you do see innovation happen, it often tends to be, or appears to be, the exceptions to prove the rule. At any rate, people are not trying out ideas systematically and scaling them up. And that is what the goal of innovation policy should be. So you look at this more broadly, and you talk about the innovation paradox, which basically says that if innovation is as profitable as it clearly is in the data, why are countries not investing more into innovation? And uh, one of the constraints that you talk about is the importance of complementarities, things like capacities, but also more broadly, the innovation system and interaction among actors. And these complementarities are not simple. There are no easy triggers such as investing in R&D if there are no capacities and incentives to put ideas into practice systematically. In fact, it might be counterproductive. You stress, of course, the importance of managerial and organizational competencies and the tendency for policymakers to focus too much on the supply side, things like public research and incubators, without looking at uh, the demand side of the ability of the private sector to actually try out ideas, to absorb them 
and to scale them up. And the cases of uh, South Korea, Japan, Taiwan and Singapore, as you discuss, demonstrate that government has an enabling and promoting role and uh, should be seen as a gardener rather as someone that tries to steer everything, that tries to nurture plants where they grow, but that do not determine everything, just provides most of the time the conditions. The important thing is to start with absorbing ideas and what we call incremental innovation, not completely new sectors, not frontier innovation, but basically taking ideas ideas that have worked in other countries or in other sectors and try to diffuse them through your economy. And that's where most of the potential is. And that's why, at least in theory, should be easy for middle-income countries to catch up. You talk about the importance of more focus on the demand side. So not only managerial and organizational capabilities, but also competition, incentives, capacities, also procurement and linkages with uh, multinational enterprises, which was an essential element in the East Asian cases. Now, this a concerted approach, this also requires looking at what the government can actually do in terms of capacities and incentives and structure. In this context, you talk about the capabilities escalator, that policy should be adapted both to what is possible in the economy and what government can do, what it has the authority and the financial means to do. So, you also talk about watching out for isomorphic mimicry, meaning basically that you copy-paste to an institution like an incubator. But it looks like an incubator, it smells like an incubator, but it doesn't fulfill the actual function that an incubator should do and often provides an overly generous subsidy to activities that would have taken place anyway. And most importantly, governments have to be innovative themselves. We cannot plan innovation, so government has to experiment with different ways of tending its garden to see what grows and to see what does not and change accordingly. Many thanks to our guests for today. This has been very interesting and very relevant and congratulations on your work and we hope to have you again on the program. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks very much, Lars. This has been fun.